Hi, I'm Kunal Mandal. My work focuses on producing green hydrogen from biomass. I also conduct quiz competitions for young and old. My name is Ishani Nasrur and I am faculty as professor in the Department of International Relations, Jadavpur University, Kolkata. And my training is basically in international relations and foreign policy. And one of my very key areas is basically India's uh, relationship uh, towards her eastern neighborhood. You're listening to Indo-Pacific Voices, a podcast for regional perspectives on a wide range of topics with one mission, to explore the emergent issues facing the Indo-Pacific. Three of the world's largest economies, that is US, China, and Japan are present here. 60% of the global GDP comes from this region. 60% of the global maritime trade happens in the waters of this region. Also, the fastest growing emerging economies, that is Cambodia, India, and Philippines, are also from the region. Yes, I'm talking about the very, very talked about region these days of utmost strategic importance to many countries is the Indo-Pacific region. Ma'am, welcome. Uh, actually, I should say it differently. Uh, Dr. Noshkar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much uh, for uh, being here. My uh, first question to you would be to understand the region a bit better. Now, as, I, as I've noticed that uh, this whole Indo-Pacific construct means different things to different people. For the US, it extends up to the west coast of India, which is kind of the geographic boundary uh, for the US Indo-Pacific command. Whereas for India, it includes the entire Indian Ocean, as well as the Western Pacific, as highlighted by uh, Prime Minister Modi at the Shangri-La Dialogue in 2018. So my question to you would be, uh, why do countries define the region differently? And in your view, what part of the region is of utmost strategic importance? Hi, Kunal. Thank you for having me at your show. Uh, a very important and uh, rather, I would say, a very tricky question that you have asked. Uh, you know, the idea of uh, identifying and delimiting regions, and uh, now I know that and we all know that Indo-Pacific is uh, the in region about which, as you, as you said, is uh, a very happening place for various dynamics. But uh, the idea of Indo-Pacific, according to me, also needs an, a kind of you know gestation period for really being uh, identity delimited in, in its finality. If I mean, put it that way, for lack of a better word. Uh, the reason why I tell you is that if you look at uh, the trajectory as to how the idea of Indo-Pacific has unfolded. It is, uh, it has had, I would say, a confluence or, or uh, you know, a kind of interplay for a number of dynamics or a number of factors. One is, you see, the rising importance of geoeconomics along with geostrategics. So this is at one level where these two factors come in and Indo-Pacific becomes, you know, the area where, these two seems to be played. At the same time, you see a kind of uh, interaction, I would say, between the maritime realm and the continental realm uh, of 
of the entire Indo-Pacific area. Now, if we go back a little bit to, you know, geopolitical thinkers, people, geostrategists and geothinkers, we know about famous, you know, Rimland heartland concept. And here I would say the Asia-Pacific Rimland has been quite important for quite some time. What is now becoming more and more important as we talk about as in the 21st century about the Asia Pacific, about uh, the Asian century, about the rise of Asia, you know, this rimland, the Asian rimland becomes extremely important and the concept of the Indo-Pacific becomes important. Now you asked a very, very tricky question as to why the Indo-Pacific is looked at differently from different angles or for different countries. You know, why is it so? Because I say, because the, the uh, relevance or the geopolitical significance of the Indo-Pacific as a construct is very different for different countries, right? And as you mentioned, you started with the United States. You mentioned that the United States has taken up to the Western Indian Ocean. You must remember for that the United States is actually a non-resident power in Asia. So it needs to be of continuing relevance. So we have had you know, a number of constructs being formulated by the United States in foreign policy. Uh, you know, uh, they have talked about the pivot to Asia at one point in time. They have talked at length about Asia Pacific, but it was realized that the Asia Pacific has the Asian continentality. And, you know, it was more important to focus on this part of the maritime realm because of a number of issues and which are also important to other countries of the region and beyond. One is the maritime connectivity, we know that the energy security is inextricably related to this, you know, maritime navigability and, and, and security, seamless kind of uh, what we say, uh, movement of, of vessels. So trade geostrategics is very important for the United States as much as for other countries. The other thing which is of significance to a number of countries, and I don't know why it is why uh, we kind of um, uh, have gone along these, um, you know, this kind of a narrative is that we always take China as a kind of a zero sum game as far as Indo-Pacific is concerned, which I personally think should not have been the case because the Pacific, are, you know, the Rimland, the concept of the coast is also shared by China. But given the kind of Postulation China has had over this region. So this has also made, you know, China a kind of a singled out country in this own kind. So the China's aggressive aggression concept has also made the Indo-Pacific extremely important for these countries. And the third thing also I think is important, in the Indo-Pacific, India is also important. India because that is the word. So they the United States has started with the Asia Pacific, and then they realized that it has to become the Indo-Asia Pacific. It became Indo-Asia Pacific. And when President Trump was in power, it became the Indo-Pacific. So it brings the India kind of, you know, uh, element into the whole discourse. Now, India is obviously more wedded to the concept of the Indian Ocean. That's what that's that's what is evident because it's it's geographically located as a center of the Indian Ocean. 
take it or leave it. So for, for India, the concept of the Indo-Pacific would naturally involve the Indian Ocean. But having said this, since you asked me about a, a question regarding, you know, which part of the, of, of the Indo-Pacific is of extreme importance, of rising importance, I would say that the northeastern part of the Indian Ocean, which loops towards the Indo-Pacific and which is now most strategically known as the Bay of Bengal region. You know, we have had writings by David Brewster writing about it. So that part is also going to see a lot of activities, a lot of geostrategics and geoeconomics playing together. So for me, the Indo-Pacific is something that I am looking at evolving. The delimitations by different countries will continue to remain different. But at the end of the day, you know, the Indo-Pacific as this whole stretch of water that we're talking about will see, will, will become continue to grow importance as the discourse of the Asia power rising will happen. And if I may just add at the end, just remember that both India and China are also located in this region. So that makes it extremely interesting. Yeah, extremely interesting overview. And I picked on some of the points that you made, whether it's uh, energy security, trade, and of course, uh, the China. So uh, let's deal with the dragon first. Uh, if I have to go by the motto of Hogwarts, it says, uh, never tickle a sleeping dragon. However, it seems uh, to be quite late. Dragon is not sleeping at all these days. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, the reason probably is China understood the potential of this uh, economic center of gravity for the world, as you said. Uh, and uh, through various initiatives in the last decade, uh, they have become almost the de facto or indispensable economic partner in the region and beyond. I mean, it's already the largest trading partner for ASEAN, Japan, Australia, uh, South Korea, uh, even Russia for that matter. Uh, now, the question that I have for you is, um, you know, it, it reminds me uh, that uh, the famous Indian historian uh, came Panikkar in his book, India and the Indian Ocean. Uh, written that uh, despite countless invasions from India's northwestern borders over centuries, India never lost her independence till she lost command of the sea in the first decade of the 16th century. And that's when the European uh, powers came in. And that is true for not only India, but you know even places like Indonesia, uh, Singapore, and all of those. So my question is, historically speaking, and, uh, whoever controlled, it seems that whoever controlled the trade controlled the region. Uh, I would like to know what is your opinion on this and how do you, considering that China has kind of become the big brother of trade in the region, how do you see it develop in the future? See, uh, Kunali, you already said it yourself, you know. It is a given fact that China actually not only controls or has a huge sway over, over global trade as it has emerged and it will continue for quite some time right now. But the most important part is that China has meticulously, and if I may say, very, very well homework done, has managed to establish regional value chains. Once you establish value chains, you become I would say, quite indispensable to other countries. And Chinese trade has developed this network 
of value chains. As you rightly mentioned about ASEAN, I would not only talk about ASEAN, it has stretched to Australia, it has stretched, it is with Japan, it is with the Koreans, it is also with India, you know? So this entire region has, has is in, in a way connected to Chinese global chains, which makes China very predominant in the region. And very logically, when you're talking about trade, Kunal, you're not only meaning the maritime domain. When when Great Panikkar had written about this fantastic seminal work, which we are now revisiting in various ways, we're looking at it again. Yes, the trade, the sea, when he means the maritime trade, when he talks about controlling the seas, you know, in ancient India, as you mentioned, the early 16th century, what, what was the relation, what was the elements, what were the elements which made India reach out to Southeast Asia or even as far as, you know, going to, uh, going, uh, to the West? You know, it was basically trade and trade was connected through the seas. So metaphorically, connecting, you know, controlling over the seas is also related to how much control you have over the trade of the region. And the fact is that the Chinese global va value chains are in complete, almost in complete control of the trade. There are, you know, most of the countries of ASEAN, the major trading partner is China. Do you think you uh, we would be able to balance that uh, as in India yeah, has the potential? I, I, I wouldn't say, I, I'm not a very big optimist out here, you know, given the fact, you know, Chinese economy, you know, the depth and the stretch of the Chinese economy, uh, if you're meaning we, you mean India. Well, India singularly, unfortunately, at this point in time, is not in a position to compete with the kind of value chains, connections that have been created. In fact, India has deficit with China, right? India has, in, in fact, all the South Asian countries have deficit with China. There are only few countries who have a surplus with China. Even Singapore has a deficit with China. It is only... South Korea, it is only Japan, which happens to have a have surplus with China. Otherwise, you can understand for a country like India, it will not. I mean, I personally, it is my take that let's not get into the competitive dynamics with China. We are not in a position to compete economically at this point in time with China. Right. And therefore, but you must also understand that. You know, given this new dynamics where we are living in probably the first, uh, you know, uh, war between, you know, between Russia, you know, Russia and Ukraine, the first war of the 21st century in the largest sense, you know, there are new dynamics this will also be building up. That is also the reality. We are also have to deal. We are also dealing with situations where we have energy situations to handle. So this will also, this is also impacting China. That's what I'm trying to say. It is also impacting China. But that does not mean that we can really, you know, take over. And in the post-pandemic China, that is also another different story because there has been effect. The, the economy has been also impacted within China. And China is also facing some amount of hardship as we all have heard in various, various, various sources. So China is also having its share of hardship. But given the fact, and you, we have all talked about the BRI, you know, the discourse. You know, so the spread and the strength, the stretch that China has as far as the trade 
part is concerned, especially in this part of the world, I do not think that there will be many competitors until, until, this is the caveat that I would like to put, until countries that we are now seeing this dynamics folding of having, you know, formations like Quad or AUKUS coming together, you know, trying to weave their strengths together to counter, you know, the economic strength of the economic stretch, the economic prowess that China exercises over this region. And that is what I said before, Kunal, that somehow in this Indo-Pacific kind of discourse, China has been singled out as that which does not fall in the harmony of Indo-Pacific. Uh, so I'd like to pick on, uh, you mentioned uh, energy security a few times. And since I work with clean energy, uh, I've been sort of thinking about this uh, in recent times because uh, climate change is, of course, the biggest crisis of our time, at least our generation for sure. Uh, everything else kind of come, becomes secondary. And uh, this region is one of the most affected uh, due to the climate change. And it's evidently clear in front of us because of the few things that has happened in recent times. For example, uh, Indonesia, a country had to shift its capital from Jakarta to another island, simply because it's going to be submerged in the coming days. Maldives is searching for a new homeland uh, because the entire country is going to be underwater. So they're probably going to buy up land in Australia and other places and they'll shift their entire population. Uh, also, if I have to go by the UN estimates uh, uh, that by 2050, Indo-Pacific region could see as many as 89 million climate refugees most of whom will come from Southeast Asia and the Pacific, uh, per se. I'm just discounting the innumerable uh, you know, storms and uh, other things that have been happening in the region. So a critical component of solving this crisis is definitely energy transition uh, to a cleaner uh, source, as well as uh, energy security for the nations in the region. Now, in recent times, I've noticed that U.S. has launched a new effort called Asia Edge, which is enhancing development and growth through energy that aims to strengthen energy security in the region. Now, this has primarily happened because, uh, you know, U.S. or China have been uh, kind of the pivotal when it comes to energy uh, technology development or supply chain development. Both these countries have been kind of uh, to some extent, Europe also uh, has been working in this. Now, my question is, the problem is that because most of these technologies are not developed uh, you know, in this region, a lot of these uh, lies on dependency of you know, a particular supply chain that probably China controls or a technology that an other developed nation controls. Uh, what do you think of uh, the current US policy? And uh, do you think that will probably reduce dependency on the Chinese supply chain or uh, what else can probably be done in the region to make the region more climate resilient as well as energy secure? Well, this is another extremely uh, tricky question. The reason why is that we are dealing with this you know, threat of climate change on a daily basis. 
And as you correctly pointed, you are a specialized person, so therefore you're well equipped to speak on this, is that many countries in Southeast Asia and South Asia are literally taking the brunt in, in various ways. If you can really, you can, you can, you know, take, you can make a mental dairy. There have been, I mean, hundreds of these, uh, you know, uh, climate, uh, you know, tornadoes and, and floods and, you know, all these natural calamities, which are really, really affecting uh, the small countries, the island countries, the coastal countries of, of, of the region. And then you rightly say that leads to another humanitarian crisis of refugees and resources and issues like that. And definitely one of the things we are looking at and we are staring at is the issue of energy security and that to add a sustainable or a renewable energy uh, you know, kind of discourse. Now, it is true that um, the Chinese, China has also, and China has been one of the countries which have been penalized a lot for fossil fuel because the part of the modernization program was entirely uh, charged by fossil fuels, basically coal running on coal and oil and gas. They were not looking for renewable energy and they were being penalized. So now they are now looking at renewable energy. Now, renewable energy and alternative energy, basically hydrogen or you know, you know, green hydrogen people are talking about. People are also talking, it needs technology. It also needs rare earths. It also needs a uh, you know, lot of minerals, which are not available with everybody. Now, China in that case, China in this case is also, has made a lot of investments within, within this neighborhood. China has a control in terms of solar energy, in terms of hydrogen-based energy, in terms of you know, even you know, transmission lines, talking about transmission lines, hybrid transmission lines. China has had done, has a lot of control over this region. Now, as you mentioned about the edge, which of the United States is talking about, the Asian aid, which is talking about decarbonization and bringing about alternative modes. Of, of energy sustainability and it involves it has, I think it was from 2018 if I'm not mistaken. So this entire thing will take some time according to me. It will take some time because it needs uh, one all the countries do not have those kind of resources that is required to transit to these kinds of you know energy uh, energy alternative en energy mechanisms or alternative energy paradigms this is not going to be a very easy task and it needs a lot of funding which is coming now in this case china has been supporting it has been reaching out to a number of countries and it has been giving you know a very rare earths like lithium you know nickel these are some of the minerals that I'm, you know, and they have, in fact, a rare earth kind of consortium for themselves from which they can control. So the Chinese understanding, you know, of, of, of alternative energy and, and uh, you know, sustainable energy and sustainable development, Chinese are also talking about sustainable development, has taken off, uh, well, take, you know, has reached out to the neighbor. Now, we have to now see, we must see, uh, we must understand, since the launch of the Asian edge with the Americans have been done, we've also faced the pandemic where, you know, for two years, we have not seen much of progress happening. But you can see, this will also, to a certain extent, this is my personal understanding, coincide with the Quad discourse. 
this has to coincide with the court discourse. So we will see uh, the United States uh, reaching out to a number of countries. They have already started, you know, talking about transparent funding. You know, they're talking about alternative resources. They're talking about alternative technology. So these are the elements that will happen. But it is also understandable that both United States and China have not been able to set great examples in terms of its ability to control emissions, to give up you know, fossil fuel, and in, it's, but, you know, its ability to counter or mitigate global warming. Both these countries are still one of the highest polluters of the world in terms of its you know, O2 emissions, CO2 emissions. So this whole picture, if you take in a larger sense in Asia, and particularly in the Indo-Pacific region, as you rightly have been talking about, I think it will take a lot of time and it will also involve a lot of uh, you know trade trade-offs because you know energy security and energy-based productions are also linked to how your trade layoff is going to be, how your trade, uh, you know, your trade diversifications are going to be. So given this situation, I think energy security and renewable energy security in the in the Pacific will be the next important issue in the region. And both China and the United States will have a lot of stake in this case. Great, so, uh, uh, you know, we have been talking for some time and uh, we're almost running out of time. So my last question to you would be that uh, since you are a doctor and if I have to come to you for a prescription, uh, what would be your recommendations or so-called Ten Commandments, let's say, for uh, free, open, and inclusive uh, in the Pacific? What are some of the important points that you... Well, would... again, uh, well, Ten Commandments is very biblical. It wouldn't fall into the doctor's parameters. Uh, but very frankly, uh, Kunal, if you're asking me for a free and inclusive Indo-Pacific, Indo-Pacific, uh, one, we must understand that the maritime realm is a seamless connect. We do not, we do, we must understand that is the issue of global commerce. There's the issue of sea lanes of communication. There is also, you know, as we say now, we are looking at ecological challenges. We are looking at environmental challenges. Um, we are looking at you know situations where livelihoods are changing because of ecological impacts like the lack of fishes leading to fishermen turning pirates that has been one of the narratives around somalia around malacca straits so we are looking at issues in the indo pacific which uh, i would say needs to be thought out of the box and it is not only hardcore security i'm not saying that military issues are not there. There are military security issues. You have military things happening. You have, uh, you know, China going as far as, you know, Seychelles and having posts out there. We are looking at, uh, you know, naval exercises and things like that. These are all happening. But what I'm trying to say here is to have a free and inclusive Indo-Pacific. We have to think out of the box. We have to give priority to more pressing concerns like, you know, 
the humanitarian issues that are facing. As you said, this is one of the largest, large populated areas of the world. 63% of the GDP comes from here. You have a huge population, which is looking at, at different kinds of challenges. Challenges spectrum is very large. But alongside one particular thing that I would like to think, I would wish for, I, I, I don't hold a brief for it. You know, there is no use talking in terms of binary in the idea of a free and inclusive discipline. You know, as I have said early, right in the beginning of what I, of my interaction, you know, this whole idea of United States trying to uh, posit the Indo-Pacific vis-a-vis the Chinese rights. No, it doesn't happen, right? India thinking in terms of Indian Ocean and the United States and the China and other stakeholders. There are also ASEAN countries who are thinking in terms of their literates. You know, everybody is thinking in their various ways. But it must be understood that in order to have a free, inclusive Indo-Pacific, you have to include all the countries and all the stakeholders and bring about some amount of standardization and rationality of perspective. If you may notice that the Chinese have explicitly not written off the Indo-Pacific. They have not written at all. They may not be happy about it. They might not be concerned about it. So it should not be that the Indo-Pacific is all about the, uh, you know, the uh, maritime silk route vis-a-vis the Indo-Pacific. It should not be like that, or it need not be like that. It could bring about a kind of a harmonized system and bring about all the countries and the stakeholders. Even China is concerned or will be concerned about the issues that bother them. For instance, if I could simple, put a simple example, you know, uh, say a nuclear North Korea is a concern even for China. It is also a concern for, you know, uh, Japan. It is also a concern for the United States. So there are issues where there are differences and there will be differences and there shall be differences, of course. And we are, of course, looking at a very different China. Of, it is not a China of the Deng Xiaoping. It is not a Deng Xiaoping China. It is a Xi Jinping China and a very, very different aggressive China. So these are, there are issues that will be there. But my understanding of a free and inclusive Indo-Pacific is trying to bring in all the stakeholders together and working out a consensus. There should be no single country who can take over the Indian Indo-Pacific. You know, there cannot be a hegemonic stability model. If there is a quad, then if you have a SU, you have a AUKUS, you have a MSR, you have Belfruit happening. So many things are happening. It is a very happening place as you started right at the beginning of your discussion. So every of these angles have to be brought in together. And in I, I would dare say in the next 10 years, we are going to really see fantastic things happening. So let's hope, and there should be also my last point, is the importance of international law also becomes very important in the maritime domain. And China must understand that international maritime law has to be taken into account when you deal with maritime issues. Whether it's East China Sea, whether it's South China Sea, it has to be acknowledged. Freedom of seas have to be acknowledged. So there are issues which cannot be addressed immediately, but given the dynamics that is unfolding, we shall see both hotspots, yet we shall also see harmony between states. 
Thank you so much, uh, Professor. And uh, to sum it up, for me, it will be the biggest takeaway is in Bengali, we have a saying, and that essentially means that human above all is probably the key thinking that we have to bring for a free, open and inclusive Indo-Pacific. And uh, that's where collaboration and cooperation is going to come in handy. And uh, thank you everyone for joining in. Uh, please uh, follow and subscribe to Indo-Pacific Voices. And Professor, once again, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thank you, Vinal, for having me over. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in. Rate this conversation on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. To stay updated, visit our website, ipcircle.org. And follow us on Twitter at IP underscore circle. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers and do not represent the organizational views held by either the Council for Strategic and Defense Research or the Center for Policy Research.